Good morning. Well, many of you are probably like me, and you've already caved in and bought a subscription to Disney+. Plus. And if you have, I want to recommend a very touching movie called Ruby Bridges. Uh, it's not your typical Disney princess movie. In fact, it's a movie about segregation in the South in 1960. And in light of all that's happened recently in our culture, our family thought, it'd be a good idea to watch this. And so, not too long ago we did, and in case you haven't heard about this story, I just want to talk with you about it and, uh, and let you know what happened to little Ruby Bridges. She was a six-year-old little girl that was selected to attend an all-white elementary school in New Orleans. And despite six other girls being selected, she would end up being the only girl that would do this venture into this school all alone. Um, but in one sense, she wasn't alone because this was a huge deal in New Orleans at the time. There were several crowds around her. One crowd that was around her every day was the group of federal United States Marshals that would escort her from their squad car uh, into the front of the school each day to protect her from the prevalent crowd that was also there every day, angry protesters waiting outside of the school, furious over the decision that their kid's school was going to be desegregated. And they would daily gather to hurl insults at this little girl. They would say things like, I'm going to poison you. And they held small <clears throat> coffins that had little black dolls on the inside of it. It's, it's hard to watch and to listen to. But as she got back inside the school, she was, the crowds were gone and, and she was alone. Um, every teacher except one refused to have her in her class. Every parent refused to have their student in the same class with her. And this left her and her teacher, a sweet lady named Mrs. Henry, all alone to do school. And they did school by themselves for an entire school year, all alone. But through all of the insults and through all of the prejudice, Ruby persevered. And her family's faith played an important role in that. And in one touching scene, Ruby is doing her nightly prayers and she prays for her very persecuted her very persecutors, and eventually over time, this changed the school. It's a heart-wrenching movie to watch, and you find yourself saying as you're watching this little girl uh, undergo this kind of persecution, she doesn't deserve this, and somebody needs to make this right, and who's the teacher, or who's the students that are going to step up and are going to be here for this little girl and treat her with dignity and respect, and you're going to find yourself saying, this isn't fair. And we're all too acquainted with that phrase, aren't we? That's not fair. Nobody has to teach us that. We learn that from a very, very young age. And it's something that resonates with us. And when we think that something isn't or is not fair, we're quick to point it out. And in a sense, when we say that, we're crying out for justice. We think this is not right. It needs to change. Justice needs to happen. Well, in God's providence and in light of everything that's happening in our culture today, in Ecclesiastes, that's exactly what we're talking about today. And we're going to be looking at Solomon. And Solomon is going to be crying out for justice as he wrestles with wickedness and the finality of death. We're going to be in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verses 16 through 22. And if you would stand with me this morning, we will read this in entire passage. Ecclesiastes three sixteen through 22. 
Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath and man has no advantage over the beasts. For all is vanity. All go to one place. All are from dust and to dust all return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward. And the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth. And so I saw that there is nothing better than a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? You can be seated. So the first thing that we're going to look at today is justice on the outside. Justice on the outside in verses 16 and 17. You don't have to look very hard in our world today to see injustice. It's at every corner of the globe. It's right under our nose. Justice, especially social and racial justice, is the topic today in our culture. You cannot get on social media or watch the news without hearing about it. It's everywhere since the killing of Amon Arbery, George Floyd, just last week, Rayshard Brooks in Atlanta. These things have stirred our nation. They've stirred the church on these issues. And really rightfully so, a couple reasons, because one, uh, God is a God of justice. Solomon recognizes this in verse 17 where he says, God will judge the righteous and the wicked. He cares about justice. Moses describes God, th- describes God this way at the end of his life in Deuteronomy 32, 3 through 4. He says, for I will proclaim the name of the Lord, ascribe greatness to our God, the rock. His work is perfect. For all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. David, when he was pursued by his enemies, he takes refuge in God's justice and God's protection over him. And he says in Psalm 7, 6, Arise, Lord, in your anger. Rise up against the rage of my enemies. Awake, my God, and decree justice. And this is not only an Old Testament idea, of course, but it's found in the New Testament as well. And we see Paul talking about God being a God of justice to the suffering Thessalonians. In 2 Thessalonians 1, 6 through 8, Paul says, Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to those who are afflicted as well to us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. God will inflict his fiery vengeance on those who are unjust, and he will, get, he will give relief to the afflicted. So we can clearly see God is a God of justice, and therefore we should be a people of justice because our aim is to be like him. The greatest commandment in Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven through 40, Jesus tells us to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. We're to love him. We're to love what he loves. We're to be about what he is about. Jesus demonstrated this perfectly even from a young age when he tells his parents in Luke chapter 2, verse 49, didn't you know that I would be about my father's business? Well, we're supposed to be about his business as well. John six thirty-eight. Jesus tells the crowd, I came down to heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And in the same way, we want to do the will of God 
what he would have us to do. So if God is just, we too should be just. But before we go much further, um, so that we can imitate God in this, we need to know what justice is, and I think we need to clearly define it. There are two Hebrew words that Solomon uses here in verse 16 that can be rendered justice. The first one is called mishpat. Mishpat, and this is translated justice in verse 16. Strong's Concordance defines this word as a verdict favorable or unfavorable pronounced judiciously, especially a sentence or formal decree including the act, the place, the suit, the crime, and the penalty. This can also include a person's right or privilege. In essence, it's giving a person what they've got coming to them. It's giving to a person what they're due, whether it's punishment or whether it's reward, protection, or care. So when Solomon talks about the place of justice here in verse 16, he is focusing on human institutions that render justice. These would be places like the courts, the government, um, lawmakers, law enforcement. And he's disturbed because as he looks around, instead of finding justice in the very place where he should find justice, he's like, there's wickedness there. This bothers me. The second word that Solomon uses is called teshtek. Teshtek. And it's translated righteousness in verse 16. And it can mean what's right naturally, morally, or legally. Also, what is equitable, what is fair, what is prosperous for someone else. Here, Solomon is referring more to day-to-day relationships. And it's, it's basically right living in how you conduct yourself with other people that you're around. So this can be in your family, this can be in your workplace, this can be in your neighborhood, this can be in your city. And once again, he's disheartened that instead of finding righteousness or finding justice there, what does he find? It's like, I find wickedness. And these two words are combined many times in the Old Testament. It's easy to see why, because if human, for in, human institutions to render proper, juridic, to render proper verdicts excuse me, that are just, fair, that are equitable, that provide protection and care, they have to be filled with just people who operate this way in their day-to-day relationships. And so what we see in human institutions that are supposed to uphold justice, that's just a microcosm of what is going on day-to-day in the lives of people that are in that society. And this is why, at times, you see that God is so furious at Israel at a national level and accuses their entire nation or some of their higher institutions of great sin And he sees injustice there because he knows that there's a trickle-down effect. That means injustice is everywhere. And Amos is one such book. Amos lived during the reign of Jeroboam II around 800 to 750 B.C. And during that time, according to 2 Kings 14.26, God saw the affliction of Israel and that they had none to help them. And so with them being afflicted, God says, well, I want to do something about this. I want to step out, and I want to help them. And that's exactly what he did. He saw their need. He stepped in, and he gave them peace, and he gave them prosperity under the reign of Jeroboam II. Even though he wasn't a great king, he restored territory to them, and they experienced many blessings politically, economically, and materially. In fact, something interesting that I came across uh, online is that archaeology has found that during that time that homes in Israel actually appeared to be larger and more expensive than previous homes during other reigns. And they showed marks of prosperity. Yet at the same time, they also found smaller and more crowded pockets of homes during this exact same time. So it appears, based off the archaeology, the rich had gotten richer, the poor had gotten poorer, 
God's generosity toward Israel apparently had not changed their hearts. So in steps Amos. He's a shepherd from the poor countryside, and God gives him a divine prophetic calling to pronounce judgment on Israel for their wicked ways. What were his main accusations? It really came down to two things. One, apathetic and fake worship. They were going through the motions in their religion. And secondly, forsaking justice. Here's some things that he says as we go through a quick survey of Amos. In Amos chapter 2, verses 6 through 7, he says, They sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. They trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth. And they, and they throw aside the way of the afflicted. A man and his father go into the same girl so that my holy name is profaned. Another accusation that God has against them in Amos chapter 4, verses 1 and 5. The rich oppress the poor and crush the needy. Their worship was filled with thanksgiving offerings and free will offerings that they love to offer, but there was no righteousness in their lives. In Amos chapter 5, verse 7 says they've turned justice into bitter fruit and they've cast down righteousness to the earth. In chapter 5, verse 10, at the gate, which is where justice was supposed to be administered, they hated hearing those that spoke the truth. They trampled the poor and they took taxes from them. A few verses later in verse 12, the Lord accused them of their great sins of afflicting the righteous, taking bribes, and turning aside the needy at the justice gate. In verse 15, he calls them to hate evil to love good, to establish justice once again at the gate in their courts. And in chapter 5, verses 23 through 24, he says, Your songs of worship, they just sound like noise to me. I'm not going to listen to them unless you start establishing justice and righteousness, and they roll like the streams of ever-flowing water. In chapter 6, verse 4, he says, You lie on your beds of ivory and you stretch yourself out on your couches and you sing these idle songs all the while while people are in need. In chapter 6, verse 12, they turn justice into poison and the fruit of righteousness into bitter fruit. In the last accusation in chapter 8, verse 5, they rushed times of the Sabbath because they couldn't work and make money. They're like, let's get this over with so that we can sell more goods for profit. And they deceitfully balanced their scales to price gouge other people. This was a corrupt society, but it looked great on the outside. So in chapter 9, verses 1 through 4, here's what God says to them. Because of these things, the Lord is going to bring his justice on them. And he said, you're going to get what you deserve. Your capitals are going to be struck. The people's heads are going to be shattered. No one is going to be able to hide from the Lord from hell all the way up to heaven. Not a single one of them would survive. He even promised that those who went into captivity, he would see to it that they were killed there. This is very graphic language, and it shows us how God feels about where they were at as a society as a whole. He saw injustice at their gates or in their courts, the human institutions. He saw it in their comfortable, prosperous, yet evil lives as he looked at the people and their day-to-day members of society, and he hated all of it, and he promised that he was going to make it right. Now we go back to Solomon in Ecclesiastes 3.16. He laments the wickedness of all of this. He sees these kind of things too, and he's lamenting over it. And I think the question for us today is, do I do that? Do you do that? You hear a story of, Racism and prejudice, like the story of Ruby Bridges, do you lament 
over that. When you hear about the plight of the aborted unborn, does your heart break over that? You hear about police brutality, does that sadden you? You hear about hardships of the poor, does that bother you? Human trafficking, domestic and sexual abuse, starving children in other countries, persecution of Christians simply because they love Jesus, do those things stir your heart? Does that bother you? Do you want to see justice done in those situations? These are causes for great lament. Solomon sees it, and we should too. We should want to do something about it. We should want to be like God, to love him with all of our hearts. And the second part of the great commandment is to love your neighbor as yourself. He's like, do these two things. Love me, love what I love, and love your neighbor as yourself. So what's the answer to this? We see justice out there, or we want to see justice out there on the outside. What's the answer? Well, there's a time for reform in the gates, as there was in Amos's day, uh, where maybe there's laws and things like that that need to be changed. Um, I took myself just through kind of a history lesson online this week in light of everything going on in our culture, and I, I just looked up a lot of things between the Civil War and the Civil Rights Movement, just so I could learn more about it. And there were laws in place that needed to change in our own culture. There were laws of segregation like the one that Ruby Bridges experienced, known as Jim Crow laws, where whites and blacks could not attend the same schools. They couldn't be within two blocks of the same playground. They couldn't ride on the same train cars. They couldn't drink from the same water fountains. Oftentimes, the black facilities that were provided were underserved. Yet these laws were upheld by the Supreme Court in decisions like Plessy versus Ferguson in 1896. There were poll taxes that were established that everyone had to pay, but oftentimes it discriminated against blacks and poor whites from voting, serving on juries, running for local offices in hopes of exacting change. There's anti-miscegenation laws where in place, that were in place that prohibited whites from marrying other races. It was a crime, and they were repealed nationally in 1967, and in some states not until the year 2000. So was there a need for political, national change? Yes, there certainly was. There were laws that needed to change. But it's, of course, not just the United States. We see injustice everywhere because there's people everywhere. How about laws and regulations outside of the United States today? Some things that I came across looking at Open Doors uh, ministry that uh, helps us to learn more about the persecuted worldwide. Under Pakistan's notorious blasphemy laws, Christians continue to live in daily fear where they will be accused of blasphemy, which can carry the penalty of death. All it takes is an accusation. In Iran, it's illegal under Islamic law to share your faith if you're not a Muslim. It's also illegal to hold a church service in the common vernacular. Those who do it will face imprisonment. In China, planned birth ordinances are set up in many provinces that mandate abortion for women who are pregnant with a quote-unquote unauthorized child, or there is a heavy fine equivalent to two to ten times their annual salary. There's discrimination, poverty, and violence that weigh heavy on the lower class in the Indian caste system today, despite reforms in the law. So there's a need for change and justice at a higher level, certainly, at times, and Solomon believes there is and that there will be. He says in verse 17, God will judge the righteous and the wicked. For there is a time for every matter and for every work. There is a time for everything, including justice, that he talks about earlier in chapter 3. And God will judge fairly between them. So do we use our position in life 
to affect change for justice on the national scale and the human institutions that we're involved in? Yes, we do whatever we can at that level. Do we pursue justice and righteousness in our day-to-day relationships, our families, our neighborhoods, our workplaces? Yes, we make that our daily aim as well. But at the end of the day, we trust God to exact justice. Only He is going to make everything right. And only His timing is perfect. And we pray to that end and we trust Him to that end. So when we think of justice on the outside, kind of out here and out there, I think a lot of times it's very ideological, it's abstract. I know that I've struggled with, well, what do I do? You know, I'm I'm not real sure exactly what I'm supposed to do. I see the problem, and it can be frustrating. But I think at the same time, part of me and maybe part of you kind of likes that because it's out away from me. It's out there. It maybe isn't so close to home, but... This is where Solomon is going to go next. That's maybe going to hit us just a little bit harder. Is we like to keep things out there. We don't necessarily like to look in here and do something about that. It's easier to see problems than others and not ourselves. In fact, as we look at Ecclesiastes, you know, Solomon's doing this very thing. He sees all the problems out there. Life is meaningless. Life is vanity. Nothing you can do about it. You just get this sense that Solomon's throwing his hands up in, up in the air at times. But yet, ironically, as Solomon is lamenting the lack of justice, we know, based off of 1 Kings twelve eleven, he's part of the problem. Uh, he himself laid a heavy yoke of forced labor and taxation on his people to accommodate his large household and his many building projects. <clears throat> kind of sounds a bit hypocritical, doesn't it? But that's where Solomon was at, and we might be too. I know that I find myself there at times. The problem is not just out here. The problem primarily is right here. It's inside. It's in our hearts. And that's the second thing we're going to look at today is justice on the inside. Justice on the inside in verses 18 through 19. Solomon says, I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. Solomon certainly saw the injustice around him. We see it too. But we especially notice when it's done to us, right? If it's not fair for me, I want justice to be done quick because I've been wronged and I want swift punishment. Paul Tripp calls this our inner lawyer who we are quick to hire if someone offends me or does something that I think is unfair toward me. So oftentimes where we want justice the least is we want it against us, against our own hearts. We're quick to cry out when something's not fair, when it happens to me, but we're even quicker to show mercy to ourselves whenever we look at our own sin and our own unfairness, our own lack of justice. And it's just kind of our lookout for number one mantra. Take care of yourself. I'm not part of the problem you are. If you just leave or you just change or you just go away, get out of my life, I would be better off and things would then be okay. It's thinking the problem is out here and that it's not in here. That justice is about others and it's not about me. But yet it is about me and I too can be filled with wickedness as Solomon talks about. And the Bible makes this so clear to us. It says we're so prone to look at others and to judge them and to not judge ourselves. We see this many times. I want to read a few verses for you about it. Matthew 7, 1 through 5. Judge not that 
you be judged, for the judgment you pronounce you will be judged, and with the measure that you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that's in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there's a log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will be able to clearly see to take the speck out of your neighbor's eye. Philippians 2, 3 through 4, do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Romans 12, 3, for by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. And in James 2, 1, my brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Why does the Bible keep reminding us over and over and over and over and over again to not be so quick to judge others, to quit looking out for self, to quit pridefulness and showing favoritism? Because that is our default every day when we wake up. That's where we find ourselves. We are quick to judge others and to not look at our own hearts. And so knowing this, Solomon says, man, when we're acting like that, we're acting like brute beasts. We're acting like animals. And he says, God is testing man to try and to show him when, when this is your mantra and how you conduct yourself day to day, you're acting like a brute beast. It's dog eat dog, survival of the fittest, eat or be eaten. He's like, that's what animals do that lack sense, that lack reasoning, that are not made in the image of God. So here's an idea. We've got to judge ourselves. Allow God to test our hearts and our lives in light <clears throat> uh, right now just to see where we're at and let his justice roll in us and show us our own sin. And are you living like the universe should revolve around your little life? If we were honest, we'd say, yeah, that's kind of what I want. And oftentimes when we are, there's no way for us to be just and to care about justice because that's about others. And so if we're thinking about ourselves and life revolving around me, there's no way that I can seek justice for anybody else. And that's what people were doing in Amos's day. They were way too busy, way too busy lounging on the couch, singing lazy songs, enjoying life while other people suffered. Seeking justice and showing compassion, it requires us to take our eyes off of ourself and this is why the familiar phrase in Micah 6.8 about justice, it couples justice with two other critical things. In Micah 6.8 it says, He has told you, O man, what's good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. You can't seek justice if you don't love kindness and have a humble heart. That's what's supposed to separate humanity from animals, from beasts. That's what shows we're made in God's image. But if we look out for self, Solomon's right. In verse 19, he says, for what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beast, it's the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beast, for all is vanity. And that is the lookout for number one mantra. It proves to be nothing, you prove to be nothing more than a beast in a sense. And Solomon's like, well, in the end, you're just dead like he is, and there's no difference. It's just one more completed life of vanity. What a sad life 
We don't want to live a life like that, do we? God hasn't given us our life to be lived for us. And so for us to overcome that, we need to live with the end in mind, and we need to remember our last point this morning. Our third point is justice beyond the grave. Living with the end in mind, verses 20 through 22. Now, Solomon did not have the advantage that we have today. Um, We know a lot more about the afterlife because of the New Testament. And up until Solomon's time, information about the afterlife was much more limited, yet Solomon did have enough scripture to know that God would judge the righteous and the wicked once and for all one day. In Job, Job believed that he would be given a redeemed body one day in Job 19, 25 through 27. Job says, for I know that my redeemer lives and at the last he will stand upon the earth, and after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. My heart faints within me. Job knew he'd have a redeemed body one day. The sons of Korah in the Psalms knew that they wouldn't be left in the realm of the dead, and they say in Psalm forty-nine, fifteen, but God will redeem me from the realm of the dead. He will surely take me to himself. David believed that his deceased child went into eternity and that he would join him one day in 2 Samuel 12, 22 through 24. And he said, while the child was still alive, I fasted and I wept. For I said, who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me that that the child may live. But now he's dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. So when Solomon says, who knows? I mean, who knows? There's got to be another reason why he is questioning this idea. So let's go back to the end of our passage in verses 20 through 22 to finish up. He says, all go to one place, all are from the dust, and to dust all return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes downward into the earth? So I saw that there's nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? He knows death is certain. He knows that the concept of man's spirit, about the concept of man's spirit going up and an animal going down, but he is really doubting this and he's struggling to believe this right now. So he concludes, well, just enjoy your work for the day and just know that whatever you leave behind, it's it's up for grabs. And if you're not sure about eternity and you're not confident that there is going to be a final judgment where a God of justice is going to set matters straight forever, that's going to be kind of how you feel about it too. Well, I don't know. Who knows? Hope it all turns out okay in the end. I guess I'll just work and try to enjoy what I've got. We're all gone in the end anyway. I'm reminded of James chapter 1, verses 6 through 7. It says, But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that's driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all of his ways. Solomon is doubting so much right now in his life, and he is just trying to find the best that the world has to offer, and he's coming up empty. And I think he's unstable because of it. He's not sure what's true. And so he says, I don't know, who knows? Maybe it's this way, maybe it's not. But here's what we do know based off of Hebrews nine twenty seven through 28. And just as it's appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time 
not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Because we know that you and I are not just brute beasts, though we might act like it at times. We will stand before God in judgment. He will exact his judgment on our lives perfectly. Romans 3, 19 through 20 tells us there will be no excuses for any of us on that day when we stand before him. We won't have a word to say in our defense. Our mouths will be stopped. Our guilt will be apparent. And we will be compared to God's law and his expectations. We will be found guilty and wanting. Jesus said, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect in Matthew chapter 5. If you miss that mark, you will never make it through a judgment like that. And neither will I. So is that, is that just the end? Is that just the end? No, no, this, this verse, these verses in Hebrews 9 tell us a little bit more. If God is truly a God of justice, he has to punish my crimes. Yes, that could spell an eternal death for me forever. But is there a way of escape and a way of escape that's just? And praise God, there is. And that's why the gospel is so sweet, is because God in his perfect justice Knowing he had to judge our sin, he was willing to judge our sin on another if you are a believer. He poured out his perfect judgment and his punishment on his beloved perfect son for the crimes that we have done. In 1 Peter 3.18, Peter says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. Talk about something being unfair. He got all of my sin, and I got all of his righteousness. And praise God that he is a God of justice. Because if he wasn't, my sin would not be taken care of for eternity. He alone can make me right before him, and he has done it. So as we conclude this morning, and we hear stories about injustice, like the one with Ruby Bridges, or we hear about another killing in the news, or we see pictures of people that are destitute on TV or on the internet, we need to remember that God is a God of justice, that he is going to make everything right in his time, and it might be today, but it might not be until eternity, and we trust him in that, and we look forward to that day where everything will be made right. In Romans twelve nineteen, it says, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And in the meantime, while we're still here on earth, let's seek to be like him. Let's seek to love justice, to love mercy, to walk humbly with him. Let's make a difference for injustice as a believer in your spheres of influence, in your family, in your neighborhood, your workplace, and beyond. But to do that, we have to get our eyes off of ourselves and onto those that are in need and those that need our help. Let's figure out how to do that individually. Let's figure out how to do that as a church so that our institution can impact other institutions and our city and our nation and our world. Let's pray that God can help us with those things. Lord, we just come before you this morning with heavy hearts. In many ways, God, we think about our culture, we think about what's going on out there, and it saddens us, it breaks our heart. We want things to change and to be different. Treat people to be treated with dignity and respect as if they are made in the image of God. We want to see that. And we pray that you would uh, exact whatever change that needs to happen at a higher level so that that could happen. God, we also see, though, if we're honest, we look in our own hearts, we look at ourselves, and 
there's major changes that need to happen there. We're all sinners that have fallen so desperately short of your standard. How do we need to change? And, and, and odds are it's probably just something small. It's just a step of intentionality that we do with a humble heart where we seek to show mercy and justice and whatever it is you call us to do in love. And pray that you would show us what that would be. Reaching out to a neighbor, a coworker, getting coffee, getting lunch with someone, having a heart of understanding, a heart of love, loving our neighbor as ourselves. Uh, it's it's going to look different for each one of us. So I just pray that you would help each one of us to think about how we can uh, pursue your heart in this. And um, yeah, we just thank you for your message today. What a timely message as we're going through Ecclesiastes and a message that uh, needs to be on our hearts and needs to be in our minds. So continue to lead and guide us, God, in this. And uh, God, help us to be people that, above all, show the love compassion of Christ to others. We have opportunities to share the gospel that brings peace to the heart and peace to culture. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.